morning, ZPC. What a beautiful day it is today, huh? Thank you all for uh, navigating through uh, less than uh, ideal um, weather to travel in. It is good to be here with you this morning. And we are here again, as Jason said, kind of on the brink of uh, Advent starting next Sunday. And of course, before that, uh, over the next few days, uh, we will be celebrating Thanksgiving. And so it is uh, good to be here with you and to celebrate that uh, together today. We are continuing our look through uh, the New Testament. Last week, Pastor Scott did a great job of preaching on the beginning of Hebrews. And this week, uh, we're going to take a passage from the end of Hebrews, from Hebrews chapter 12. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 4. So I invite you to hear these Words. Hebrews says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross disregarding its shame and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such hostility against himself from sinners so that you may not grow weary or lose heart. And in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, on this rainy Sunday, we thank you, Lord, for the ways in which you feed us, the way in which you give us drink, the way in which you nourish us. Lord, we pray that you would help us this morning to hear what it is that you would have us to feed upon today. Some of it may taste good. Some of it may be more difficult to swallow. And yet we know that you are here with us in the midst of that. So I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. And amen. Uh, so if you're paying attention, you may have noticed that the very first word of our passage today is the word therefore. And whenever you see therefore, you should probably uh, be mindful of what's coming beforehand. And what's coming before Hebrews 12 is Hebrews 11. And Hebrews 11 is oftentimes called the, the, uh, the hall of faith, right? It's just kind of uh, going through this, this litany of people in Scripture uh, who have followed God well. And so we have folks like Abel and, uh, and Enoch and Abraham and Moses and Rahab. And there's just this list of people who have uh, these saints, if you will, who have gone before us. But it isn't just a listing of saints. If you go back to Hebrews 11, you'll also see that there's a description of, of what people have had to struggle with and suffer with and the ways in which they've been persecuted for following God. People who have been uh, mocked or tortured, who have been stoned to death. It even mentions um, um, those who have been sawed in Two. I mean, this is kind of graphic and, and, and harrowing kind of verbiage. And there's a sense of, uh, of the author wanting the people there and the church to which Hebrews was written 
to be able to understand uh, just how much others have endured for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of God. And so it's likely, scholars think, that those to whom this letter was written were probably enduring something, uh, were enduring some suffering and some struggle because of their faith. But what's also interesting to notice, of course, is verse 4. We're going to kind of just jump to this quickly where it says that, that, that they have not yet endured the point to the point of shedding blood. In other words, it seems like, as Luke Timothy Johnson points out, that they have struggled, but they have not yet actually struggled as much as Jesus or even as those saints that have gone before them. They haven't yet shed their blood. And it's almost as if uh, what, what Johnson says is that the author is trying to give a sense of proportion to the people that are hearing this. A, a sense of saying, hey, look, we know that you have struggled, but don't inflate right now how much you have endured because you could endure much more. I, I found that captivating. This is almost just kind of, I'm, I'm kind of starting with a sidebar today, but I, I do notice at times it does feel like there are Christians in America at times who, who talk about the fact that they feel like we're being persecuted for our faith. And, and, and I understand that, I guess. And, and certainly there are times when we can be discriminated against, times when there are struggles. But I do think it's important in the midst of that for us to remember these kinds of passages because they're really trying to say, look, before you start using too dramatic of language, before you start saying, hey, we're being persecuted, just ask yourself this first. Have I been sawed in two yet? Now, again, that's not to minimize the fact of, of some of the struggles that we may have as followers of Jesus, nor is it to say at some point in the future we might not endure some of that, but it is to say let's be careful about the language that we are using, and when we, when we kind of feel like we're struggling, let's go back and just remember exactly what it is that Jesus had to endure. Remember what it is that those like those in Hebrews chapter 11 had to endure, or, and we prayed about this a couple of weeks ago, even what those across the globe, those who genuinely are continuing Continue to be persecuted for their faith to the to even to the loss of their lives. And so we begin by just kind of saying, all right, let's kind of let's let's have a sense of the scope of what it means to follow Jesus. But 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 struggling and persecution isn't the only thing that this particular passage is about. If so, then it then it might not really have much to say to us. But the language of this particular passage, this, this race language of running a race. And then when it says to look to Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith, the one who helps our faith to grow to what it can be, means that what this passage is also trying to describe is what it takes in order to really be able to be shaped more like Jesus. The, the language that we used to oftentimes use in this, and some theologians still do, is the language of sanctification. Uh, but what we, we often take Ephesians here, um, where it says that our lives are becoming brighter and more beautiful as God enters into them and we become more like him. I like how uh, Tim Keller also describes it. He says, this is about becoming what we were designed to be. In other words, Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 4, is asking us this question. What does it take for us to genuinely become more and more like Jesus? And what this passage really tells us is that that journey 
is like a race, but it's not like a sprint. It's much more like a marathon. So what then do we do if we want to be shaped more like Jesus? How do we run the marathon well? Well, the first thing that Hebrews says is in the first verse, it says this. It says that we should lay aside every weight and sin that is weighing us down and that keeps us from running the race well. Lay aside every weight and every sin that is weighing us down. Most of us probably have some sense as to what that is. Um, I, I, I have run and jogged when I have been 210 pounds, and I have run and jogged when I've been 180 pounds, and I can tell you 30 pounds makes a difference. Right? I mean, it is so much easier to run when you weigh 30 pounds less than when you run 30 pounds more. There's a little bit more spring. There's, there's less pain to all of your joints. It's much much easier. And so it makes sense then as we think about this, yes, to drop our sin, the anxiety, to drop the, the, the envy that we have, the jealousies that we have, the pride that we have, the overly ambitious uh, parts of us that we have, to drop those things, we can see that would make it a little bit easier for us to run. But Ben Witherington points out that really it doesn't just mean sin, every weight, it also means things that can be in and of themselves good. And this is perhaps uh, even more important for us to notice because it's easy for us not to think about this, that even those things that can be good can distract us from actually running the race well. When I was preparing for a run uh, a few years ago, I got this camelback, uh, you know, kind of water uh, backpack, if you will, right? So that I wouldn't have to stop off at a water fountain. I could just keep running. I, this is a great idea because water, you need water when you, when, just to live, right? And it's, are we agreed on this? Water's good, good. Water's good. I want to make sure. All right, good. So water's good. So, so that, this is going to be great. But the problem was is that the little straw or whatever you call it, for some reason on my camelback, it didn't have like a little place to put it. And so it was just like I would run. It was like, and it was going everywhere. And it was really quite a nightmare, actually. So I was like, what kind of cruddy camelback did I get, right? And so I had to like try to fit it into the little backpack strap. But then it would, it would, it would kind of rub sometimes the way it just start hurting. And then I'd take it out and then it would just start going around. And, and not only that, but then if you didn't take all the air out of it, which I'm not very good at, those kinds of things, then, then it would just slosh, right? And so you were running and it's just like... Right? And people would look around because they would think like a rain barrel must be chasing me. I mean, it was all this kind of... It was this mess, right? Until finally it was just like, well, forget it. I will find a water fountain. Why? Because water, even though it was good, it can become this massive distraction if we're not kind of paying attention well. It can keep me from being able to focus on the run. And so there are, of course, many of those things that are good in and of themselves. I've seen hobbies, right, that can become major distractions, right, to, to our being able to run well. I see sometimes kids in their extracurricular activities, again, in and of themselves, fine, but when they're taking up 30 or 40 hours to the week, then there might be a struggle. It might be distracting us from being able to run well. Entertainment can be fine in and of itself, but when it begins to kind of consume us, then it becomes a distraction to us being able to run well. And so we must always be paying attention. Are we adding weight that we don't need to necessarily add? But the other thing, of course, that's interesting about this passage when it comes to this sense of adding weight and distraction is verse 2. Verse 2 says that we need to look to Jesus. But what's interesting about that in the Greek is that there's kind of a two-prong to what this means. On the one hand, it means exactly what we would understand in English. It means to look to Jesus. 
But identically, it means that we also have to be highly intentional about looking away from other things. In other words, with the great intentionality that we look to Jesus, we must also be continually asking ourselves, what are we looking, what are we looking at that is keeping us and distracting us from this journey of being shaped more like Jesus? And I think that's an especially important word for us in the church today, especially in the church in America. I've been talking about this a little bit over the last couple months. I probably will continue to do because it's something that weighs heavily upon me, which is the amount of distractions and the amount of disruption in the church today, the amount of splintering in the church today. I just got done a couple weeks ago reading this very lengthy article that I thought was really resonated with much of what I've kind of been experiencing, especially amongst friends of mine and their churches, is the splintering going on around lots of different issues, politics or, or COVID or the issues of race and, and, and all these issues, of course, these aren't just issues. I mean, these things are, are important, but what you what you begin to notice the more that you pay attention is that interestingly enough or saddeningly enough that these things have kind of begun to get so large that, that, that we seem to not even be able to see Jesus anymore. And when you begin to kind of allow these other kinds of things to begin to kind of go up there so big and so strong that you no longer can even see Jesus, then we need to begin to realize that we are in trouble as the church. And that one of the things that we have to be absolutely committed to is both to making sure that Jesus stays first and foremost and final when it comes to who we are as a church, but that we are almost daily making sure that we are not allowing some of these other things to get in the way of what it means for us to be a united body focused on Jesus Christ. One of the things that um, one of the things in this article, or one of the quotes, was by a guy named Alan Jacobs. Alan Jacobs is a, uh, a professor now at Baylor, which is Pastor Scott's alma mater. He used to be at uh, he used to be at Wheaton, um, which is my uh, one of my alma maters. And I, you know, I used to actually uh, I used to play pickup basketball with Alan Jacobs. He has a deceptively good jump shot. If anyone is curious, you know, sometimes we think professors can't play basketball well. I don't know why I just said that, but but anyways, he's quite good. So. But here's what Alan said. I want you to hear this. This is important. He says this. He says, culture catechizes. Culture educates, in other words. Culture teaches us what matters and what views we should take about what matters. Our current political culture has multiple technologies and platforms for catechizing. Television, radio, Facebook, Twitter, and podcasts among them. People who want to be connected to their political tribe, the people they think are like them, the people they think are on their side, subject themselves to its catechesis all day long, every single day, hour after hour. Alan goes on to say, well, how's that going to hold up for most of our people who are going to church and especially if they're not in a small group or a home group or a Bible study, who are really just being educated maybe 30 minutes to an hour a week. Here's what he says. He says, if people are getting one kind of catechesis for a half an hour per week, that's worship, and another for dozens of hours per week, which one do you think will win out People come to believe what they are most thoroughly and intensively catechized 
to believe. And that catechesis comes not from the church, but from the media they consume, or rather the media that consume them. The churches have barely better than a snowball's chance in hell of shaping most people's lives. Now, I almost didn't say that last phrase because, you know, I had the word hell in it, and I thought, you know, maybe people might get mad, but I asked Pastor Scott. He said it would be fine. <laughs> but I also wanted to include it because, to me, I think it's the kind of abrupt and waking up kind of language that we need to hear which is that we cannot, as a church, afford to be passive about what it is that we are listening to and watching. That make no mistake about it, the things that we are consuming are not just informing, they are transforming us. And if we want to make sure that the kind of transformation that is occurring in us is a spiritual transformation that is making us more like Jesus, then we cannot be lackadaisical about what it is that we are consuming each and every day. And what we have to begin to understand as well is that it does not just affect you. It affects us as a church and that if you are allowing yourself to be informed and transformed by the media and by what they say is important, that that will shape how you come into this place. And that we have got each and every day to ask ourselves whether or not we are being catechized, whether we are being taught whether we are focusing on Jesus Christ first and foremost, that does not mean that we should not be informed, but it does mean that we should always be mindful. Are we being shaped and being focused on Jesus Christ or on any of these other things that the world around us is trying to convince us is more important than Jesus? That's the first part. We want to run this well, then we have to be willing together as a body to throw aside every weight, every sin that weighs us down. Second part, it seems to me, that we see in this passage is that we need to, as I've already alluded to, we need to have the stance of understanding, the posture to realize that this is not a sprint, that this is is a marathon. That's what it says here. It says in verse 2, we must run with perseverance, or as some translate it, with endurance. This reminds me of the line that we oftentimes like to use from Eugene Peterson, who stole it from Nietzsche, which is just a long obedience in the same direction. Or as we like to say here at ZPC, steady, stable, and plodding. This is not exciting verbiage. But the reality is this, that if we want to be shaped more like Jesus, then we have to be committed to steady, stable, and plodding. We have to realize that it's not going to happen in a moment, that you will not wake up one day and all of a sudden you miraculously look like Jesus. Because if you think it's a sprint and not a marathon, I promise you, you will give up. You will grow weary. You will not finish the run, the course, your life well, if you think you should be able to do it in a day or a week or a month or even a year. 
Over the last two decades, I have run five marathons. Now, I, I almost didn't say that because I realized people are going to be like, oh, Jerry's just trying to kind of, you know, humble brag about this. Let me be very clear. At the pace in which I run it, almost all of us could actually do it, okay? I am not very fast. I am steady, stable, and mostly plodding. In fact, usually by the time I get to about the halfway point, the first place finisher is already done. Right? And they are just done and they're laying down lazy. They can't keep running for at least a couple more hours like I can, right? <laughs> but I'm not very good. Uh, I, 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 I'm not very fast, but I, but I still wanted to have a goal for myself. So I always had this goal, right? Starting in 1999 was the, it was the first year that I ran a marathon. It was the Chicago Marathon. And I had this goal and I, and I didn't get it. And, and the next time I had a goal, and the same goal, and I didn't get it. And again, I didn't get it. And again, I didn't get it. And I mean, I, it's not, I didn't just not get it. I was like not even close, really. And, and I mean, by the time I finally got to usually about the 16-mile mark, I think one time I made it maybe to the 20-mile mark, I mean, it was clear I was not going to make it. And, and I looked bad. I, you, you may recall, I said this a few years ago when I ran the Monumental, uh, that one of our covenant children, I think he was probably nine, ten years old, he, he was on the final stretch and he saw me and he looked over to his mom or dad and he said, wow, Pastor Jerry looks broken. <laughs> and it was totally true. I mean, I was spent, right? And I mean, I just, I was, it was really, it was awkward and embarrassing for all of us. But then two years ago, in 2019, on the, at the Monumental, that same goal, I finally beat it. And I wrestled with wondering. I mean, it was literally almost to the day, 20 years since the very first one. And I said, what is it? What made the difference? And it felt like I did mostly all the same. And so when I talk to people, the thing I have always said, there's probably a few reasons, but the most important factor was this, that for the first half, the first 13.1 miles, I listened to a podcast on finance and money. It was not very exciting. Usually I'd always be trying to listen to music that would pump me up, you know, I was like, you know, that kind of like, that would get your heart going, right? I mean, just this is kind of exciting stuff that would accelerate you and say, hey, keep going. But no, 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 for that first half, it was mostly just a guy or two just kind of talking, literally just having a, a kind of a boring conversation about finance and money. But I am convinced that because of that and because of the fact that every few minutes I would just kind of say to myself, slow down, slow down, slow down down. That because of those kinds of things that I went slow enough, I plotted enough in that first half that I was actually able then at miles 16 and 18 and 20 and 22 to keep going because I hadn't sprinted at the beginning. And I'm convinced that when it comes to our own spiritual lives, there are far too many of us that try to live it as if it is a sprint. This is why we talk with some regularity here about the importance of things like Sabbath, of slowing down, of contemplation, of meditating on Scripture. None of those things are that exciting. When I preach about the sabbatical, no, or, or not the sabbatical, when I preach about the Sabbath, nobody walks out and is like, Woo, Sabbath! That was awesome. Thank you, Pastor Jerry. That was amazing. 
No, it doesn't get your blood going. It doesn't get the pulse going. It's not exciting. But what it does do is it allows you to see how this is a long journey. It allows you to be still and to be quiet. It allows you to experience the presence of God. It helps your eyes to begin to change what you see and, and what you hear. And all of those things are a part of what it means to see this as being a marathon. And if you just try to go from one thing to the next, especially with a bunch of overachievers like we have, when you're struggling with your faith, you say, well, I must, I must not be doing enough. I, must, I need to do more. Let me, let me go do this. Let me go do that. And then when, when nothing happens and you feel even more desert-like than you did before, you think, well, I have to do even more. And before you know it, you are exhausted. I'm afraid that we have too many people who are concerned about spiritual stimulation and not enough people who are concerned about spiritual transformation. Spiritual stimulation is good and right, and there are important times for that, and it can get your heart going. I will assure you of this. During that last half of the marathon, I turned the music up. But in and of itself, spiritual stimulation will not lead to spiritual transformation. Which means that we need to be wary of things at times. Now, I'm going to say this. I'm going to be real careful with how I say it. I want you guys to hear me. Most of you know me. You know my heart. I love Great Banquet. Did you hear me? Thank you. And I do. I love it. I've been to it. I've served on a team. I was so glad we were able to do it a couple weekends ago. It is amazing. But we also, because we, we like to talk about things, need to be honest that it, that, that, that it is tempting at times with Great Banquet to love it so much because it is a highly emotional experience and it is incredible and it is wonderful. Have I said that enough? At times, it is tempting to jump from one great banquet weekend to the next, to the next, to the next. I won't, I won't do another one. <laughs> and never land in between the weekends. What does that look like? That means kind of the daily and the weekly worship with brothers and sisters in Christ, some of whom you like and some of whom you don't like. It means weekly and daily times of confession and assurance of pardon. It means all of this kind of living in community again and being with people who force you to want to be patient. And remember, the only people who make you want to be patient are the people who annoy you, right? But that's an important part of transformation. It means all those things. Now, Great Banquet tells people, look, this is what you need to do. They tell them they need to do this, but people don't listen sometimes. And my point is simply that if we want to both have that great kind of, that, that great spiritual stimulation, which is wonderful, that we also then have to engage daily and weekly and monthly with the community of Christ, because that's what helps us then to continue to be able to mold more and more what an event like Great Banquet, what an experience like that helps to begin. And so we have to continue. If we want to be about this marathon, we have to make sure that we are willing to engage in those steady, stable, and plodding parts of the journey. Cast aside the weight and the sin that holds us down. Understand it's not a sprint. It is a marathon. Do it with one 
another. Hebrews says that we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. I love that. Obviously, in that sense, the cloud of witnesses is talking about those saints that have gone before us. Uh, the image I have is just kind of of the spectators, right, who are all along the route, right? And, and, and if you've run a marathon or something like that, you know, especially for the good marathons where there's lots of people, lots of crowds, it is super exciting, right? When they're there and they're cheering you on, I mean, you feel like you're like an Olympic athlete, right? I mean, it is just, it is remarkable. If you ever want to know what does it feel like to be an Olympic athlete without actually being an Olympic athlete, well, then just go run, right, in a part of a marathon. Just hear them cheering for you, right? I mean, it's just, it's glorious, absolutely glorious, right? And so, so, so we need those folks. But now here's what else it says. It says that we are surrounded. Do you hear that? What does that mean that we are surrounded? What it means, of course, is that the author and the community to which this letter is written, that they are all participants together. And that is really important. Because when you get towards the end of the race, when you are going through particularly difficult times, there is nobody who is as helpful as those others who are actually participating. When you run in these, some of these marathons, you see people who are bleeding because they've fallen down, because they tripped over something or they got tired. You see people whose running gait looks dramatically different than it did at the beginning. You know, they, they, Their knee might be out and they just kind of keep going. And when you see that and you see that they are continuing to go, it helps to kind of feed this excitement within you to say, well, look, if this person can continue to go, then, then maybe I will. And when, when a participant, especially at the end, is saying, come on, you're not done. Keep going. You've got this. That is a beautiful experience. And it continues. It helps to spur you on. We need one another. And so one of the ways that we here at ZPC help to cultivate that, we believe, is not by just saying that we need one another. It is by, as an example, it is by the shape of the building in which we are in right now, including this sanctuary. I read a book uh, a few weeks ago now called uh, The TechWise Family by Andy Crouch. If you have uh, younger kids and you want to know how do I wrestle with technology and kids, and all of us should be asking that question, I wouldn't, you know, it's, it's, it's probably not the Bible on this, but it's a really good short book. I would encourage you to do it. But I was mostly expecting that it would just say things like, you know, limit screen time, things like that. But in the very beginning, in part one, it talks about this. It talks about what does your living room look like? Is your living room the most comfortable, whatever the most comfortable room is where you typically are, what's at the center of it? Is everything centered towards the television? Because if that's the central focus, then what do you think the major focus of your family is going to be? More than likely, the television, right? And what it's pointing out, of course, is the importance of, of our buildings, right? Remember Winston Churchill's quote, our, we shape our buildings and then our buildings shape us? We shape our sanctuary and then our sanctuary shapes us as a community. And I bring that up today because one of the things about our sanctuary is that you can see pretty much everybody. And I think that that's really important, but it's also, it poses a challenge. One of the challenges is that, you know, it, it's hard for production. It's hard for, uh, for our live stream, right? And, and, you know, we want to have a good live stream. It's a lot easier if you're in a completely dark room with no windows. But the other thing it seems to me is, is that it's really hard to have a highly emotional experience, spiritual experience in a light room like this. 
Think about this. If you've been in a dark place, right, where you have, it's just you, and then there's a spotlight on the stage, and the preacher or the, the musician is there, that's a, that, that, that makes it almost a one-on-one -on -one experience. I've experienced this before. It can be amazing. Let me be very clear. And it's just you and that person. If it's a song or, you know, and you can just feel the intimacy of that moment. It's like there's nobody else around. It's just me and that person. And those moments are good and right and fine. But I think that by and large, those moments lead more to spiritual stimulation than they will in the long term lead to spiritual transformation. Because what we think is important is, is, is not just you and the person up there. Clearly, that's, that's good and right. Our relationship with Jesus is always personal, but it is never private. And what we want is as you sit here and you sing together, I want you to see the people who are next to you and who are singing. I want you to hear the word proclaimed and be able to see the person to your left and right or across the sanctuary. As we are praying, I want you to be able to see the people who are all around you who are also praying. All of those things, you need to be able to see one another. This cannot be a detached faith. We need to cultivate what does it mean for us to be on this marathon together because I can promise you in those dark and difficult times which all of us will have, we need brothers and sisters in Christ who are reminding us that we aren't done, that we can keep running, keep going. And so we cultivate each and every week the importance of being able to visibly see one another and know that we are not alone. Cast aside the weight. We understand it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. We run as a community, as brothers and sisters in Christ. But there's one last thing that is perhaps the most important because it helps us to understand why. When I was running that marathon in 2019 and my wife and our four daughters were, uh, were there and they were, of course, kind of there throughout the, throughout the course. And it's always exhausting if you run someone to a marathon. I think it's almost tiring for the spectator who wants to see them at different parts, right? Because you're like, oh, geez, I don't want to be late. And all these roads are closed. And, you know, you're trying to dodge runners and you're trying to bring, especially when you have like, you know, four kids and you're trying to get there and it could be cold and they're all wrapped up, right? It can be kind of a mess. But, but there was my wife and four kids, you know, at different spots. And it was always such an encouragement, right? When you saw them, because, you know, you just run a little bit faster when they're there and they're cheering and you on, and you're like, all right, and you're like, you know, you turn around, okay, they're not looking anymore, and you slow down, and you just, that's just kind of what happens. But what I most remember about that last race was that very final stretch. It was probably about 75 or 100 yards before the finish line, and over there on the left-hand side, I saw my wife and our girls. And so I ran over there, I like wobbled over there, and I had about three or four minutes left still to, to reach my goal, so I knew, I knew that we had a little bit of time. And so I saw them, and they were just glowing. And so I grabbed my wife, because she was like kind of the one who would let me still hold her and give her embrace her, because I was gross, and braced her and she looked at me and she said, 
you did it. And she told me that a few minutes before that, she had looked to the girls as I was kind of finishing up, and she knew, and she said, Daddy's going to do it. And after that, after I heard her say that, I just kind of turned to the finish line. I was exhausted. My legs were tired. My lungs were exhausted. But, man, I just ran to that finish line. There were literally, I know it's all very melodramatic, but there were like these tears, you know, that this 20-year journey, I finally Reminded me of what Hebrews says when it says that Jesus endured the cross and disregarded its shame because of the joy that was set before him. What is that joy? The joy that was set before him, as most people think was you. The joy that was set before Jesus was you and was me. He had everything else, and yet he decided to come down for only one reason, because of you. You see, I think when we're running along that course, is Jesus there? Absolutely. He's encouraging us in those difficult times. The saints are there. We have one another, all those things. But the image that I want you to have most strongly in your head is that image of Jesus there at the final stretch. And that's going to be different for all of us. We don't know what that's going to look like. We certainly don't know what it's going to become or when it's going to come. But what I want you to think about is I want you to think about Jesus there at that finish line. And he's got this smile smile on his face and his arms are like this and as you come down and you think I don't know I may not make it and you begin to fall because all of us will fall someday and Jesus is there and he catches you and he looks at you and he says you did it we did it well done Good and faithful servant. He looks at you with joy because you are his joy. I know that this journey is not easy. It is not fast. It is challenging, but it is good. And it is good because we serve a God who bears the scars of his love for us. We serve a Christ whose grace is enduring through everything. And we serve a God whose joy is you. So that wherever you are on this I want you to picture Jesus at the finish. Saying, well done, good and faithful servant. You did it. Hallelujah. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. God, there are so many moments when we may convince ourselves that we cannot finish. 
But what we know, Lord, is that you have already run this course for us. And that you are waiting, Lord, to embrace us. At the end of this marathon, at the end of our ups and downs, our struggles, our joys. And you are there, God, ready to welcome us in. May that give us the strength and the energy to keep taking one more 